Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 241. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Malkino, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for the um, time that we're living in. And uh, most importantly, thank you for giving us the assurance that as we continue to stay connected to you, um, availing ourselves of the truths of your word, uh, uh, walking every day uh, by the power of the Spirit, turning away from sin, turning into um, the forgiveness of Yeshua, that we can uh, have this assurance, Lord, that you are going to continue to speak to us and draw us into this relationship uh, where we have this sense of the urgency of the hour. And as we watch events unfold before our eyes around the world, as we uh, watch the headlines, sometimes with um, confusion and sometimes with uh, shock, disappointment, at the same time, Lord, we read your words, we read the Bible, because we know that therein lies the absolute uh, standard, the rock-solid standard, the the objective standard for what we can expect is going to happen. And not just now in our lives, but um, what's coming down the road. We don't know how far in advance these things might happen. I'm speaking of eschatology in this prayer, Lord. But we know that your promises are sure, and you gave these details to your um, followers, your disciples, as we're going to be turning to Matthew 24 again tonight so that we would have a, an advance warning, so that we would be prepared, so that our hearts would not be troubled. You sent your precious Holy Spirit so that we would know that um, you are still in fellowship with us, that you have not left us, you not abandoned us, even though you're not here bodily, you are here in spirit. And so thank you as we continue to look at these particular topics tonight, help us to continue to rely on you, not to throw our hands up in frustration and say, well, no one can understand this. Rather, we know that you understand it perfectly because you're the author. These are your words. And so we look to you, the author of the book, and uh, we seek to please you and to worship you and to make you the preeminent one uh, in our lives and in our families and our communities. Help us to be witnesses. Help us to share our testimony. Give us holy boldness. Give us a divine opportunities to share uh, the good news with those around because in the end it's not really your view of prophecy or um, uh, end times that's going to uh, perhaps a matter even the most rather do you have a relationship with god through his son yeshua that's what matters the most we need to get our priorities back in order and make sure we're focusing on the the, the things that are primary uh, the things that are foundational a relationship with god through yeshua is the only way that we're going to make it in these last and evil days so lord give us that um sense of perspective that the harvest is ripe and yet the laborers are few help us send us here we are lord send us send us out help us as we um uh study with one another help us to continue to build up one another and to pray for one another to support one another and um just to have a a, um, a sense of of realizing that uh, as believers, things are going to start heating up for us in the world if they haven't already in the places where we live. And so when more than ever, Lord, we need to, to support one another and pray for one another, strengthen each other. So hold each other's hands. We'll be careful, Lord, to give the praise and the glory, Bashim Yeshua Omein. All right, thank you everyone for joining me for these live internet studies. I do apologize for the two weeks back-to-back break that was not in my schedule. I originally did plan to miss Thanksgiving break a, a while back. 
that was planned. And then I had another unplanned outage, another unplanned uh, break uh, due to uh, some maintenance and power outage and things around here where I live. So it, I just I, there was little I could do. So I appreciate everyone's patience. It's time to jump right back in. However, we are in uh eschatology biblical study of end time events that you can look and see on your screen and we are in topic nine with yeshua's all of it discourse part two and we took some time out to focus on this sort of excursus material let me turn and show you the photo of the book uh looking through robert van Cameron's book called the sign which is sitting on my shelf right here and we pulled in two chapters where we talked about the signs of yeshua's coming and of the end of the age so if you remember when you go back to matthew let me just scroll back up to verse three yeshua is having this discussion with his disciples on the mount of olives this is why it's called the olive discourse he's sitting on the mount of olives the disciples came to him said uh, privately and saying tell us when will these things happen and of course the context of their question is he was yeshua was just just ended up having in the previous chapter this argument with the religious leaders of his day and he was just raking them across the coals and then he, he kind of concludes this whole thing with, you know, see these buildings? They're, they're all going to be destroyed sooner or later, too. He's talking about the temple. And uh, that sparked the, the disciples' interest. Hey, when will these things happen? So they were really kind of focusing on the destruction of the temple. We can see that in the previous um, verses there. where He left the temple areas going on his way. Disciples came to the point out, point out the temple buildings to him. He responded by saying, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So it, from verse 2, the these things is primarily, from the disciples' limited perspective, the destruction of the temple. right? And that's really kind of the... Um, epicenter of much of yeshua's prophecies where he's talking about you know there's jerusalem there's i'm sorry there's israel if you zoom out then you zoom in there's jerusalem and then you keep zooming in there's the temple so um when will these things happen when what will be notice what their question says what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age at least from this rendering it seems like there's one sign but two primary events the sign of Yeshua, uh, the, the coming of Yeshua and the end of the age. So the, the primary events that we're talking about are a, at least the destruction of the temple, because that's part of their question. We're also um, entertaining the details about Yeshua's prophecy and how they pertain to his second coming, because it says the sign of your coming. And then, of course, the end of the age is the end of this time period, what Judaism calls the Olam Hazeh, which from Hebrew translated into English would be something like this present age, which for a long time the rabbis understood would give way to the Olam Haba, which translated from Hebrew into English would be something like the age to come. So we have this age, and then we have the age to come. This age to come is the messianic age that the Messiah would establish here on earth for at least a thousand years, ruling from Jerusalem from the Temple Mount. So the sign of your coming is part of their question, and the sign of the end of this age leading into the Olam Haba, the age to come. So Yeshua begins to answer and give all these details, and he itemizes all of the what we would today look back now and understand are the beginnings of birth pangs. So he's describing events that are related to what we're going to find out later on in Revelation are the the seals of on the outside of us of a large scroll and there's seven seals so we work our way down through all of these and we parked ourselves at verse 29 and 30 and 31 for a little while we talked about uh, these signs and from my 
understanding there are two signs. The first sign is the sign of the end of the age. And then the second sign is a sign of Yeshua's return. So chronologically, the events would take place where Yeshua, um, uh, the, the, the Yeshua returns, meaning the rapture, and then the end of the age, and then Yeshua returns to establish his kingdom. How much time is between the rapture and his setting of his kingdom? My understanding is that it's, it's not three and a half years, but it's not seven years either. It's probably somewhere, you know, a few years uh at least a year but i could be wrong it could be like uh, very very almost immediate but the point i'm trying to say is that from my understanding and reading through what we saw through robert van campen's book the sign there will be at least two signs one of those signs is what revelation calls the sixth seal the darkening of the sun the moon and the stars which was prophesied in joel way back uh, in the Old Testament. And so we can see it right here in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, which is after the midpoint of the week, I'll show you a chart here in a moment. The sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. That's one of the signs. That is a what we call cosmic uh, convergence, cosmic, dis- I'm sorry, cosmic disturbance. That language is uh, Zion's Hope Ministries language, Marv Rosenthal, Rosenthal and now his son uh, picking up where uh, Marv left off, uh, leading the ministry. And they use that language uh cosmic disturbance we'll see in a chart here so that's the first sign the sign of the end of the age which happens chronologically after yeshua returns so the signs are out of order but the um the events of yeshua returning and then the end of the age um yeshua returning for rapture first then the uh end of the age and then yeshua establishing his own kingdom that comes next and then in verse 30 and it says then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. So that's, to me, is maybe a second sign. And I believe that's the brightness, the brilliance of the flashing of the lightning from the east to the west, the, the brilliance of His glory supernaturally lighting up the universe, illuminating it in the um, um, in place of the supernatural darkness that was created by the first sign in verse 29, where everything goes dark, no sun, no moon, and no stars. And I was thinking... Um, as I was prepping for the study this week, how that some people want to dismiss verse 29 as some form of just eclipse. The sun will be darkened. Well, of course, we've seen lots of solar eclipses, right? The moon positions itself between the earth and the sun. And because of the relative sizes that they look to our to our observation here on earth, even though we know that the sun is much, 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 much larger than our own moon. But from our perspective, though the distance from the sun uh, to the earth causes it to look about the same size as the moon so that the moon can, uh, can easily slip in front of it and create an eclipse, solar eclipse. You guys have all seen what it looks like. I'll flash a, a picture in post-production of a solar eclipse in the case you've never seen one. Well, that could explain the sun being darkened, but notice that the sign says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Okay, we could say, all right, the moon looks dark during a solar eclipse, so that might kind of fix. Maybe we're talking about a solar eclipse. But when we go back to Joel's rendering of the moon, the sun and the moon uh, behaving oddly, it talks about the moon turning to blood. And we see that again in other passages. We don't see it here in Matthew, but it talks about how the moon turning to blood. Well, that resembles a lunar eclipse. If you've ever seen a lunar eclipse, it's not the moon that's between the Earth and the sun. It's the Earth that's between the moon and the sun. So the the, the, the moon's in a different spot. So that when we're looking at the moon, it's the Earth that's casting a shadow on the moon. 
and because of the atmosphere on the Earth and things like that, uh, it causes the moon to look orangish, or, you know, you guys have all seen a blood moon and things like that, the heptads. So, my point is that we can't possibly have just a... a, a chalk these up to just mere eclipses because the time frame that it takes for uh there to be a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse at the same time they can't happen at the same impossible unless the moon suddenly speeds up supernaturally and zips around to the other side of the earth so first there's a solar eclipse everyone looks up and like wow wow it's a solar eclipse and then the moon zips around to the other side of the earth and wow wow it's a lunar eclipse and then um and then uh, the stars start shooting from the sky and there's comets and, and meteoric activity or something like that, right? Well, I don't buy that one. Like I've heard some people say, well, this is just other ordinary type eclipses. No, I think this will be some supernatural event that uh, signals the return of Yeshua and then signals the um, end of the age eventually. So those are the signs that we talked about in previous videos. Go back and listen to those and studies. But now let's go forward and uh, move from verse 30 and 31, where he talks about the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky. All the tribes of the earth um, mourn. They'll see the, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So this could be the rapture, which I believe it is. But remember, Yeshua's return to planet Earth is broken up, and his itinerary is broken up into different um, activities, not just the rapture, where I don't believe he touches ground there. Um, instead, we go up to meet him in the air, and then there's some other activities that still take place here on planet Earth. Other things that must take place, such as the Battle of Armageddon must take place here on Earth. And during that time, there won't be, Yeshua won't be here on Earth during the planet, uh, during the Battle of Armageddon. I think most people would agree that Yeshua won't be here there then. Rather, uh, once we get closer and closer to the end of the 70th week, then there will be this expectancy that the Lord's going to cut things short by defeating Antichrist and uh, establishing his kingdom. But as we're reading these passages, Yeshua is going to give us more details leading up to that time. So he, he kind of shifts the focus once we get to verse 31 and following. He shifts the focus towards helping we as believers to understand not just the urgency, but the immediacy, or how near will his return be to, from the time that he's talking? Is it imminency, like many people teach, where he could return at any moment? Or, as we've just seen, there are all manner of events that must precede his second coming, his return to planet Earth. And so he begins to tell the disciples, and he gives them with kind of, um, not really signs per se, but just activities on earth that will indicate hey that the time is drawing close when you see certain things happening when um when the state of affairs of humanity is is in this particular um mindset so let's keep reading verse 31 says they'll send for, he'll send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds from one into the sky to the other that my understanding is that's the rapture event that is not the second coming that's the rapture so from my understanding of eschatology the rapture is one event and the second coming is a second event, and they are not to be confused with one another. There's a space of time between them. So before we jump into starting at verse 32, let me just look at some charts. This one is a chart of Matthew 24, paralleled to Revelation chapter 6. We looked at this in the past, and you can see just from glancing at the chart 
that what Yeshua gave his disciples in Matthew 24 perfectly parallels what he gave John in Revelation chapter 6 and beginning with chapter 7. And it should be because it's the same author, right? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the parallels that are running right down, right down the middle are described by John as the seals. And so we can see seal number 1 through 6 as, as outlined in the parallel uh, chapter headings or, or uh, label headings there. And when you get all the way down to interlude in Matthew 30 and 31, this corresponds with the interlude of Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 17, an interlude in the break of John's sequence of seeing this vision or this, this revelation that Yeshua is giving to him that the parallel right in the middle calls the raptured saints. And then as we keep moving past that in Matthew uh, chapter 24, uh, jumping back up to verse 14, but then jumping down to verse 30 and then continuing through 37 to 41, we see the outpouring of this extremely important time frame on planet Earth known as the, um, the wrath of God or the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's wrath, the, the day of God's judgment. Uh, goes to a few different titles in the Old Testament, but the most prominent one is the day of the Lord. Um, so we're going to use that one to primarily mark it out. So this parallel known as the day of the Lord has a parallel in, uh, in the seventh seal and the trumpets and the bowls. So the final judgments, so let's jump to a different uh, slide. The final judgments that are going to be poured out in the end of days, if you look at this uh, chart here, is um, indicated by the yellow arrow on the right side of your screen pointing off to the right. So, leading from, reading from left to right, it's just the 70th week of Daniel that commences with Antichrist making a covenant at the far left, which corresponds to the first seal. And then you can see the seals going in sequence down on the bottom of your screen from one all the way over to six. The sixth seal is that sign in the sky, the cosmic disturbance, I'll show you in another slide here in a moment, that was described originally way back as far as Joel and Isaiah and other Old Testament prophecies that Yeshua picks up on and that um, other uh, New Testament writers pick up on as the sign, at least, of the end of the age and perhaps even, as some Bible teachers would say, would be the sign of Yeshua's second coming. Notice the little arrow on the top just above the um, break between the Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord. You see that little arrow pointing down where it says, Coming of the Son of Man, date unknown. That was what I would call the rapture. And yet, there's another arrow to the far right at the top, upper right corner that says Jesus reign in Jerusalem begins. That is what we would call the second coming. So notice the space between the two is occupied by the events known as the day of the Lord, which are the seventh seal, the, the, the which uh, opens up the, the seven trumpets and then which also contains the seven bowls. And we'll get to those in time. Let's jump to another slide real quick. Here's the pre-wrath rapture view that we're going to turn to shortly not tonight we have to finish up matthew 24 first and then we might do a little excursus on the thessalonian letters from paul to pull in um, their relevance for the eschatology eschatological um, events but it won't be a long study there for paul i won't go out and drag that out for months it'll just be either one or two shows and then we're going to jump right into if you look at my schedule here topic 10 rapture views and overview and then we'll start talking about rapture for the next one two at least three sessions in my topics topics uh, 10 11 and 12 rapture views and overview making case for the pre-wrath view and then rapture views of final analysis topic 12. well when we start looking at pre-wrath just as a kind of a sneak preview the pre-wrath view is that when we're talking about the timing of the rapture the uh pre-wrath is that we as believers will be uh 
raptured or taken to be with Yeshua prior to the outpouring of God's uh, final wrath on planet Earth. So we don't equate the entire seven years with the tribulation. We segment the Great Tribulation as a, a part of the seven years. We pre-rathers. We, we, we relegate the Great Tribulation there kind of in the middle to this slice of history where it's Satan's wrath and man's wrath that's being um, witnessed on planet Earth with all that confusion and bloodshed and, and, and loss of life and destruction. But then all of that is cut short by the cosmic disturbance and Yeshua supernaturally lighting up uh, the sky and rescuing his uh, uh uh, genuine saints and genuine followers and then on the same day wrath is poured out so the saints go up and the wrath comes down is eventually what happens we can see also in this next slide that i borrowed from zion's hope again uh marv rosenthal and his uh, uh ministry there that's being headed up by his son now since i believe marvin uh, marv uh, passed away the seventh week uh, of Daniel uh, parallels with Revelation chapter 6. Again, it's the same information that we've been looking at over and over again. This is the pre-wrath perspective. Seven seals, you can see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Notice number six is the cosmic disturbance. This is all just um, recap. And then when we zoom into that, um, <coughs> excuse me, zoom into that sixth seal as it leads into the seven we can see these one two three four five six reasons why the pre-wrath view is the one that seems to be the best of all the options because of all the details that were already given to us in other places the bible show us that there is a sequence of events that lead up to the outpouring of the day of the lord and since the day of the lord is equated with the wrath of god and since we believers are not going to go through that then these events happen as convergences before the seventh seal thus we believers won't go through the events contained in the seventh seal in other words we won't go through the wrath of god so we must be taken out of the way rescued prior to god pouring out his wrath and judgment on wicked humanity and so we'll get to that in time all right so having said all of that as kind of our intro to catch us up and i took a little bit longer because of the two-week break and there are people who've lost a little bit of the bit of the momentum of our studies because of the breaks so this is kind of like the catch-up part this is like if you ever watch a, a drama on netflix or a tv show and you start the show and it says previously on and then for the next minute or two they show you flashback scenes of previous shows so that now that you're watching the current episode you understand ah oh, that's what happened okay in case you missed in case you weren't binge watching and you skipped between whatever show you're currently watching and the show you previously last well that's what i just did i did a little previously on for us okay so having said that let's jump into our study so we're reading through matthew 24 and this is kind of like the second half the first half i used my own notes that i put together but i felt that they were really too brief because i put them together like 20 years ago and they weren't designed to be exhaustive and so they're really kind of like one verse and then one little saying one little paragraph <clears throat> one little comment on each verse i prayed about it and i thought that you know why don't i just go ahead and um borrow notes from someone who's done, done a little bit more research than myself and i decided to choose pastor david guzik for the second half of this matthew excursus so again looking at this we're on yeshua's all of it discourse part and we opened up basically by looking at all of those 
um, uh, signs leading up to what Yeshua calls the end of the age and his second return. But now we're ready to, to start reading the verses themselves. Parable of the fig tree. So let's read like verse 32 through 35, and then I'll jump over to the commentary section, which we're going to borrow. This is um, David Guzik's. I'll back up a little bit for 29 and 31, and you can see some of those first. But eventually, we're going to, Yeshua is going to start telling his disciples about. Um, signs or ways to discern that his return is near and is he telling them that it's imminent I don't believe he's telling them that it's imminent that it could happen any moment in fact if it were imminent we wouldn't really and I, I kind of highlighted this last week or two weeks ago before the break two or three weeks ago if there was imminency true imminency after Yeshua left then why even give us the signs at all the sign of your coming and of the end of the age why do we need a sign why do we need signs if your return is imminent and nothing can um nothing is necessary before you actually just zap into place and show up i've heard many preachers say you know jesus could come back at any moment and they almost describe it as if he could come back before i finish my sentence telling you that jesus couldn't come back as if i'm gonna say guess what people jesus could come back before and then boom the rapture happens before i even finish saying before well that's like you know hyper imminency or something to that effect but is his return truly imminent i don't think so and just from a logical deduction perspective why give a sign if your return is imminent right i mean signs are given prior to either an event or a location like you're taking a road trip so that you can kind of have a little bit of warning that okay um how prepared do i need to be where how close are we getting so yeshua is going to start turning in that direction of look at these kind of um indicators that i'm going to be returning soon now learn the parable from the fig tree verse 32 of chapter 24 as soon as its branches become tender and sprouts its leaves you know that what summer is imminent no he says summer is near um, so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near. Doesn't say he recognize that he's imminent, that he could come at any moment without even telling you. Recognize that he's near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, so I'm kind of um uh, um you know, being a little unfair to the imminency teachers by creating straw men with my little analogies here but i think you'll get my point um in uh, uh, eventually let's begin to talk about uh, a commentary let's use a commentary and begin to unpack some of these verses so backing up the verse 29 and 31 uh david guzik pastor guzik who's a christian but i believe he's not a pre-rather i think he's just your average garden variety pre-tribber which holds to the view that the tribulation is the full seven years of daniel's 70th week and that christians will be removed from planet earth prior to any tribulation events that take place meaning even before antichrist signs the seven-year treaty with israel and before any of those birth pangs beginning birth pangs begin to happen uh the church will have been removed from planet earth and will be with yeshua in heaven while these um events are unfolding on planet earth i don't hold that view but even if david guzik does nevertheless the notes that we're going to be reading through are still foundational enough that he and i agree on the the majors so i'm going to borrow his notes for that reason plus he's a very very good bible teacher he's he's very thorough and he brings in a lot of resources from other teachers as well and it's not too long that you get lost in it but it's not so short like my own one was that you're still scratching your head going what in the world is he talking about 
And then so he quotes the verses that we just read for the segue. He talks in his points about how that the sun being dark and the moon not giving its light was borrowed all the way back from Joel 2 verse 10. Let me see if I were to click on that. Nope, I don't want to do that. And then it's repeated again in Revelation chapter 6. And then it also shows up in Isaiah. And this is what I mentioned earlier. It goes back to Joel and Isaiah and other places. I think Zechariah talks about it. So the sign the, the sign of the uh, in the heavens is definitely uh, something that, that not just we believers are kind of instructed to look for. And, and you know, give, think about it. If we're not here when this sign happens then who will this sign be for well we also know that the wicked wicked uh, uh segment of humanity that is here on planet earth that's going to be facing the brunt of the wrath of god they'll also be witness to this sign i mean if if the sign's not for believers if we're gone so think this through for a moment we, we got removed uh way back before the 70th week even began and this sign of the in the in the sun and the moon and the stars takes place inside of the seventh week. Well, then I guess the sign's not for believers, is according to the pre-trib view. Then, so we've got this cosmic disturbances, and then it says the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. So I guess that's for what not believers either. Sign of the Son of Man appearing in heaven, but it's not for us believers because we're already in heaven. We got raptured earlier, and there wasn't the sign preceding his uh, rapture return because it was imminent or something to that effect. Okay, that it doesn't kind of line up for my understanding of a, a, a face value sequential view of the verses in question. But um, uh, Guzik reminds us that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. It's difficult to say exactly what the sign is. It seems to precede his return as described in Revelation 19. Perhaps this sign is somehow related to the incredible cosmic disturbances that would precede the great event. And that's kind of what I would have said either. I didn't really need Guzik to explain it to me. He goes and talks about how that um, some Roman emperors uh, like Constantine in a vision thought that the sign of the Son of Man would be a cross in the sky, go and conquer forth in this sign. That's why uh, the um, Crusaders uh had crosses partially one of the reasons why they had crosses on their shields that they went forth and crusaded across europe and made their conquering um conquerings and things like that uh more probably it's simply a way to describe the physical visible return of jesus to the uh to earth from heaven others point out that this greek word uh, simeon is the uh, septuagint translation for the standard or banner referred to in the old testament as a signal for the gathering god's people that's a, a quote from france and then we have um barclay mentioning that on this greek word it's the regular word for the arrival of a governor into its province or the coming of a king to his subjects which would really fit with yeshua right it regularly describes the coming in authority and in power so even if you don't hold to a rapture uh, position at all you're just into the second coming you're not into the rapture i know a lot of christians who have abandoned the idea of a rapture and they're just like no we're not looking for a rapture we're just looking for jesus to return okay even if that's the case how then are you on earth for Jesus to return and you witness the sign if there was a pre-trib event where you were removed or something that effect. So either way, the, the 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 sequence of events is still not doesn't like the, the, the pre-trib events, I I don't know how they can really come to the conclusions that they do. 
um in the sequence of events so we'll, we'll get to that in time i'm trying not i'm resisting not uh getting into this in detail because we'll cover it when we talk about rapture views in the next topic right now we're just kind of skimming over it because yeshua is mentioning these details they'll see the the uh, son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory who is the they i believe it's everyone on planet earth my understanding it's both believers and non-believers they'll see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory this is the fulfillment of the end of the end indicated by the sign of the abomination of desolation since this has not happened yet neither has the abomination of desolation and i agree with that perspective by guzik guzik is not a preterist he does not believe that all of the events were collapsed into 70 a.d when yeshua uh, predicted the destruction of the temple. Remember, that was how the whole chapter started out. When will these things be, and what will be the sign? What things that no stone will be left on turn uh, 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 on top of another? Everything's going to be flipped upside down. Well, that did take place in 70 AD. I can uh, say with confidence that it did. And um, the Romans did turn up every stone as they were trying to get that gold that was melted down in between the cracks of the stones because of the intense fires. Well, the fact that the abomination of desolation was past history to yeshua in the form of antiochus epiphanes and yet there's this destruction of the temple and yet yeshua is talking about how that um uh, let me go backwards again uh the, the the this author talks about the abomination of desolation uh and a desecration of a temple since the abomination of desolation from yeshua's perspective that daniel wrote about was past history and yet yeshua says um when the when you see these things happen when they bomb when you see the abomination of desolation uh take place let the reader understand he refers us to go back to daniel and, and look again at the prophetic telescoping aspect of how much of daniel's prophecies are going to be repeated in the future and yet we know there's not even a temple at this point in time well there was a temple when yeshua spoke those words so the disciples could at least have looked forward to the temple's destruction, but they may not have known how close it was. And yet it did take place within a short amount of time from the Yeshua leaving planet Earth to the temple being destroyed, short about like 40 years. And then from that point, uh, we now have no temples currently standing in our day. And yet if we're reading Yeshua's words at face value, the abomination of desolation requires that there it must be some structure. So the point I'm trying to make is that there should be another Antichrist showing up in the form, not this time of Antiochus Epiphanes, but in the form of the man of sin that we're going to read about in Thessalonian letters uh, eventually. So, though, again, he takes a poke at the preterist here in his commentary. Again, those who claim that mo all or most of the events of Matthew 24 were fulfilled in the Roman conquest of Jerusalem and Judea in AD 70 are in an unenviable position. He's talking about the um in this part here he's talking about the preterists they often claim that jesus fulfilled this coming on the clouds of heaven of the son of man with power and great glory by coming quote unquote in judgment against the jewish people in 8070 so i'm i'm very happy that guzik is not a preterist uh and that's part of the reason why i'm using his notes here i don't think it would benefit me to use the notes from a preterist so let's keep going we've got we're only 30 minutes into the study we've got plenty of time i'm not even rushing even some of those who believe that most of the events of Matthew 24 were fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem. So we've got two flavors of preterism. We've got hyper or full preterism. And then we've got partial preterism. So maybe he's now talking about the partial preterists. Those who believe that most of the, uh, the events were fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem understand that this is a stretch 
too far. Bruce is quoted as saying, from the foregoing exposition, it appears that the coming of the Son of Man is not to be identified with the judgment of Jerusalem. Okay, and I agree with that. <clears throat> Bruce did a good job there. I, think, I believe that's FF Bruce. Okay, so let's now jump into the verses that we kind of just uh, kind of uh, highlighted here. Um about learning the parable of the fig tree, verse 32 through 36, uh, or in Guzik's uh, commentary, it's verse 35. So this is point number five in his outline, which is available, by the way, at his website at um, EnduringWord.com. And he's got a commentary uh, and sermon on every book of the Bible, every verse of the Bible. I mean, wow, that's great. His resources are free. And I'm giving the credit to him since I'm not the one who put these together. And I also put a link to his commentaries in the description of the video if you're watching this YouTube version. If you're what if you're listening to the podcast version, then go to enduringword.com, all spelled out enduring word, E-N-D-U-R-I-N-G-W-O-R-D.com. That's Pastor David Guzik, G-U-Z like zebra, I-K, Pastor David Guzik's personal ministry website. So let's pick up point number five, which covers these verses. Jesus speaks more regarding the timing of these events. So he's going to begin to give the parables, the um, parables related to uh, the disciples' understanding of the uh, events that will lead up to his return. How should we? How should our our attitude be governed? Should we be like? And this, I, I'm giving you this part in advance in case you miss it. When we look at the world in general, who is not looking for the return of a Messiah, who's just simply going about their way, doing whatever they want to do, or to use the description that we're going to read about later on, or that we've already read about, but we will read about again, is. As in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the, when the Lord returns. People will be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. That's a description of the general state of affairs in the world where people are not looking for a return of a Messiah. They're just doing what they do best, which is leading their own lives according to their own particular schedules. And yet, when we are talking about the disciples, Yeshua begins to give indicators of how to recognize that, that his return is close, it's near. And so we need to begin to realize that as we're going to be looking at these passages, sometimes he'll use language that is aimed at the disciples themselves, the ones we're going to be reading about right now, looking at physical signs as um, symbolic of Yeshua returning. A fig tree of, you know, putting forth its leaves indicates that summer is near, right? If, you, if you've got any uh, average intelligence about you, you'll understand what the analogy means, what Yeshua is trying to hint at, right? The uh, the sense of, hey, you guys are not like average humanity. You've got my very spirit living inside of you. And so, to use Paul's words in the Thessalonian chapters, you're not children of the darkness, you're children of the light. And so, for you, the events that are leading up to my second return are of a blessed hope to you. They were, they're they going to give you a sense of encouragement and looking up with expectancy, not imminency, but expectancy at my soon return to planet Earth to uh, establish the kingdom that my father gave me. And so the, the, the contrast that we're going to be reading about shortly is that we have believers on planet Earth who are witnessing the events leading up to the second turn, return of Yeshua with a great expectancy and a hope. 
at the same time, those earth dwellers, the people on earth that, and I'm using the word earth dwellers, uh, because when we finally get to the book of Revelation, um, John uses that kind of term, if I kind of translate it woodenly from the Greek, those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, these are the people who are in a position where they have not accepted God, accepted God's Messiah, they've rejected the gospel, they've embraced the lie of the Antichrist and Satan, and they are wholeheartedly going to take the mark just so they can continue living their lives the way they think is best to be lived. These people are in the dark. According to, to Paul's Thessalonian letters, these are the people who are in the dark. They're not children of light. They are in darkness. And it's for these people, and we're going to be reading about this here in a moment, in Yeshua's Matthew Olivet Discourse, these are the people for whom the second coming and the wrath of God being poured out will, will be as a thief in the night. They won't know that this is the signal of God's wrath being poured out until it's too late when it's right at the doors then they'll get the sense of something supernatural is happening and they'll clamor to hide they'll try to go into the holes of the earth the rocks and and the caves and we'll read about that shortly so um guzik repeats the passage uh the the verses learn this parable from the fig tree when its branches already become tender puts forth its leaves you know that summer's near so you also who's the you you my disciples not you the world in general so you have to pick apart who's he addressing right he's going to speak in specifics to the disciples who are in the know but he's also going to include some general aspects of well you're still in the world but not of the world and so the world around you they're going to be clueless but not you so you also when you see all these things you my disciples which is not just Yeshua's disciples then but it's us today you know that it is near at the doors assuredly i say to you and then he tells us the generation living in that time period when all of these things take place, surely I tell you, um, uh, this generation uh, will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So let's begin to look at Guzik's commentary on these verses. So we've got this first point, number A, learn this parable from the fig tree. Uh, Guzik says, the fig tree has a regular pattern. The leaves appear, then the summer follows. When you see the leaves, you know summer's near. So Yeshua is giving us these so, they're not really signs per se. He's just using common sense everyday um, uh, items to give a sense of um, that when the time is right for these events to start taking place, that there will be a sense that there will that it's um, um, a proximity is near. Like notice again, he says when you see the leaves appear on the fig tree, the summer is following. The the summer is near. Notice he doesn't. The the analogy given in the natural is that the the fig tree doesn't go from barren to overnight having leaves to overnight summer is right there. You can hear me snapping my fingers, right? The I'm trying to describe it as if it was something that would happen overnight or immediately. Summer doesn't. Just, I know on the calendar it shows we go from spring to summer. But when you look at the trees and the vegetation around and the greenery, the, the everything kind of wakes up in the, from winter in the spring, and then summer hits. Uh, summer comes uh, as the spring months pass by. I think that's a good way to indicate, or good indicator, even from Yeshua's perspective, that there is a chronology to the events, and there is a sense of the um, not the. Um, 
um, imminency of summer, but rather the urgency of the uh, closeness of the approaching. The fig tree, uh, Guzik goes on to um, comment that the fig tree was a common fruit tree in Israel. It's mentioned many times in the Old Testament, especially as a description of the abundance of the land. Sometimes fig or fig trees are also used as symbols or pictures, uh, like in passages like Jeremiah uh, 24 and Hosea 9. Figs or figs are used as a representation of Israel. And so, um, other commentators have picked up on that too, that Yeshua says, when you see the fig tree, then you know summer's, is, is Yeshua kind of cryptically trying to tell us, hey, you future prophecy buffs like us, right? The people who are having this discussion right now in real time in, in uh, 2023. Hey, you guys, when you look at Israel and see certain events taking place in Israel, know that the end times are on, on the horizon. That could be, I've heard kind of a an, an application from that perspective. I wouldn't completely discount that because it's commonly known that Israel is God's timepiece. Israel is God's clock, meaning God's using and orchestrating his his own schedule through the mechanism of Israel's events here on planet Earth. And so it is wise to watch Israel at any given generation to see what's happening with her so that we can get a sense of what's happening with God. What's God doing on the earth? Uh, let's look at Israel. That's good to do. Of course, Israel today, I don't want to stop by just saying, let's look at physical Israel. God is also using the church, and the church is grafted into Israel. And so we are spiritual Israel to that regard. So, because we both have the same Papa, right? Read uh, Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4. Abraham is our common father between Christians and Jews. And thus, we need to understand that when we're looking at Israel, we are we are looking at the church as well. What's the state of affairs in, ch in the church today? Is this an indicator of the second return of Yeshua as well? Yes. Uh, point uh, small case I, I, however most, so we're right here, however most Old Testament references, let me see if I can do what I normally do, however, yeah, I usually like to do this this way, however most Old Testament references to the fig tree use it as simply an example of agricultural blessing. It seems, uh, Guzik quotes, that Jesus' reference here is not so much on the figness of the fig tree, but on the way that the fig tree follows reliable growth cycles related to the seasons, right? So he's talking about when you see this happen, then you know summer's near. Um, he goes on to say that this is especially evident when this passage is compared with Luke's rendering of the Olive Discourse in chapter 21. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves, this is a recording from Luke, that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. And again, we're highlighting the fact that Yeshua says that it's near. He doesn't say that it's um, it can happen at any moment without any warning, without any signs, without any indicators that it was going to happen at that exact moment that it happened. I don't follow from that logic when I'm as I'm reading through these final verses in the Matthew Olivet Discourse rendering. And I hope you're seeing that as well. Why would he go through the trouble of telling them these analogies about the fig tree and about that there's going to be signs in the heaven and the earth and that, that there's all these events that happen and then and then and then and then if his return didn't require any then, then, thens and thens and thens or signs or uh, symbolic indicators that something is coming. If his return was just, you know, happening instantly before I could finish my sentence, it just, I don't follow from that. I, I, and I'm a bit um, confused as to why 
some Bible teachers hold that perspective that he could return at any moment. At some point, don't get me wrong, at some point in time, there will be imminency when all the signs have, um, when all of the preceding events, <coughs> excuse me, such as the um, abomination of desolation, the signing of the peace treaty, the, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, when those things have run their course, then when we see the signs, then really his return is imminent. So yet, at some point in time, it will be imminent. So there will be imminency. But up until that point in time, I'm going to go with what I'm calling expectancy instead of imminency. Let's keep reading uh, Guzik here. We've got some time. Uh, point number B, he says, So also, quoting Yeshua, So also when you see these things, know that it is near at the doors. What's the it? Is he talking about his return? Is he talking about the day of the Lord? Is he talking about the rapture? Is he talking about the establishment of the second coming? I believe he's talking, he's generally speaking about his return. That so you know that it is near. That's the immediate uh press of the thing that the, the, the topic, um, the immediate antecedent, um, uh, re, uh, uh the immediate uh, well, I'm drawing, I'm losing English words here. That's what happens when you end up living in a country that, isn't, that English isn't their primary language and you're trying to navigate through it. You don't speak English as much as you should. Um, the, the meeting preceding event, but I lost the word I was looking for. So in this chapter, we're talking about, he's already telling disciples, then you will see the sign of the Son of Man in the clouds, the sign of the Son of Man coming, right? Remember, let me just show it to you in Matthew here. Earlier in verse 30 and 31 and the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and they'll and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the what the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky so that i believe is the the immediate event where he says in verse 33 so you too when you see all these things recognize that he is near right at the door and um uh, that is the thing that is going to be happening soon. Know that it is near at the doors. Know that he is near. There, you could translate um, in verse 33. So that the NSB translates, so you too, so when you see these things, recognize that he is near. But if I click on the Z, oh, didn't want to do that. Let's try that again. When I click on the, give me a moment. There we go. When I click on the little letter Z there, and scroll down and look at the notes literally z says or it it's because the greek word the pronoun could be rendered he by context because we're talking about yeshua's return but some translations put he is near oh, let me stop doing that let's go like that uh some translations put he is near right at the door whereas the one that guzik's using says know that it is near. So that we had to ask the question, what's the it? I think both translators would agree that the it is he, meaning he. it is his return. That's what I'm going with as well. Guzik seems to take that position as he says, quote, Jesus assured that when these signs appeared as he foretold, remember what signs? The abomination of desolation, followed by the great tribulation, followed by the signs in the heavens, the exact same things that I, the three things that I just said, if I would not get ahead of myself, Guzik reminds us that when these things happen, his return to the earth would follow. So it's the return of Yeshua that he's focusing on now, which is why we're going to move from this section right into the rapture topic for my next topic uh, when we get to it. Guzik continues, when the fig tree buds, there's an inevitable result. What is it? Summer is near and fruit is coming. So listen up, follow the logic. In the same way, Guzik says, when these signs are seen, stop. 
Why would you have signs if there was imminency? Right? Um, so in the same way, when these signs are saying the coming of Jesus in glory with this church to this world will inevitably follow. I think really, in, in all honesty, I'm, I'm again, I'm kind of pushing the um, straw man theology where I'm talking about the the um, uh, the imminency of, of Christ. In all reality, I, bl I believe since Guzik is, I, I believe is a pre-tripper, he might have switched over to pre-wrath, or a lot of people are uh, abandoning pre-trip, realizing many of the weaknesses of that position, going over to something closer to either mid-trib or a pre-wrath, which are very, very similar. But if Guzik is a pre-tripper, like I believe he is, then he does believe in imminency, but he still believes that there will be signs. So what he does is he simply must push the signs prior to the rapture, prior to the 70th week itself even commencing, meaning he takes the the signs and takes them outside of the seventh week and puts them in front of the rapture instead of, like I do, putting those signs inside the seventh week. So perhaps that's what he's uh, dealing with. Point I in his notes here, really, he says it was just Daniel uh, it was just as Daniel prophesied in Daniel 12, 11, uh, the end will come 1290 days after the abomination of desolation, which let me pause for a moment. This is a very good place for us to remind ourselves that Daniel was the original one used by God to um, uh, really give us a lot of chrono chronology to these end time events or the, the whole 70 weeks of Daniel with this intense zoom in on the final 70th week because because within that 70th week Daniel gives us gives us the breakdown of three and a half years and three and a half years or 1260 days um, and then to which we have 1290 days, uh, or no, I'm sorry, it's 1290 days. And then there's some, the more information that's given in Daniel chapter 12, 1300 and something odd days that let me see if I have it in one of my charts. I might, I might not, if I don't have it here, we will get to it a different day, but for, for just for, for the sake of, um, um, uh, reference when we look at the seventh week using this chart we can see that this 70th week this last seven years of humanity's um time here on planet earth for the for this age to come to an end is divided neatly between three and a half and three and a half years and so the abomination of desolation takes place right smack dab in the middle between number four and number five seals according to this chart we don't know if it's going to lay out exactly the way it is between one and seven will it be exactly three and a half years when we get to four will it be f number four when we get to three and a half years i don't know exactly about that but according to the sequence of the way daniel described things leading into yeshua's description in matthew leading into Paul's description in the Thessalonian letters leading into John's description in the book of Revelation where we get the seals themselves. Remember, Daniel didn't describe seals. Jesus didn't use the word seals in Matthew, and Paul didn't use the word seals in the Thessalonian letters. But when we get to John's revelation, we end up with the seals giving us more chronology because seals are sequential, one through seven, right? They're numbered. We don't expect them to appear out of order. But the point I'm trying to make for this um, part of my teaching is that if we put the sixth seal, which is the cosmic disturbance, the signs in heaven, if we move that all the way to the beginning of the 70th week, near what looks like seal number one right now on this chart, we push it all the way out there because it must precede the second returning of Christ, meaning the rapture, meaning because 
many pre-tribbers believe that Christians will not go through the seven-year tribulation. That's what they call it, the so-called seven-year tribulation. I do not hold to that uh, perspective, but many people do. If that's the case, then the signs must precede either the rapture or they must precede the second return, the second coming, which puts the signs either at the very beginning of the 70th week or they're pushed all the way to the far right, if not the far left. One of the two. Because otherwise, uh, why would they precede? So going back to what um, Yeshua and Guzik are talking about, <clears throat> this was already prophesied in Daniel that we would at least see a 1290-day time frame after the abomination of desolation. So when we go back to this chart here, we can see that if the abomination of desolation takes place right in the middle between seal 4 and 5 or thereabouts, within the 1260 days is at the far right. Make sense? It's after the abomination of desolation, which is definitely in the midpoint. No question about that. The <clears throat> Even the pre-tribbers <clears throat> agree that the abomination of desolation is in the middle of the seven-year tribulation from their perspective. So they just don't believe that Christians will be around to witness that event because they will have already been raptured by Yeshua at the far left of the chart that you're looking at right now which I don't hold to, I think we'll still be here. We believers will be here through, we'll be here one through <clears throat> one through six seals. We'll be here through all of that. In other words, we will be part of the Great Tribulation as well. But we will be raptured sometime around the, between the 6th and 7th, because that's about where the rapture should take place. It must take place prior to the Day of the Lord, and therefore God must rescue us from the day of the lord's punishment because that's a a not just a punishment it's a judgment and we're not uh, uh we're, we're not supposed to partake in that we're not we've been rescued from the, the judgment of god by the blood of messiah we've been exempted from the judgment the final judgment and the judgment is going to be poured out against wicked humanity so going back to guzik he says the end will come 1290 days the end of what the end of this age, right? The end of humanity's final desperate attempt to overthrow God, his Messiah, his gospel truths, any semblance of, of being accountable to this holy God. Remember, they're going to be embracing the Antichrist as the false God of this age. He will declare himself after the midpoint of the week. He will declare himself as God. Paul's going to go on to tell us that he's going to take a seat in the temple, declaring himself as God, a temple that's not yet built yet, right? He's going to declare himself as God over and against any other religious object of worship that will be in existence at the time. Thus, we believers who will be resisting Antichrist because we know who the true God is, and we know who the true Messiah is, and we embrace the truth of the gospel, we are the ones who will be ripe for the martyrdom that's going to take place in that day as well. Also, the Antichrist is going to have this intense wrath and hatred against Israel like he always has, just like Satan always hates God's people. He hates Christians, yes, but he also hates the Jews, so there will be martyrdom on that end as well. 1290 days signaling the end comes after the abomination because it continues by saying Jesus assures that the agonies of the great tribulation will not continue indefinitely. They will have an end. So even if the tribulation runs the entire three and a half years, starting from the midpoint and goes to the end of the age, which I don't think it will, 
even if that tribulation were to run that the, that distance, it's still not going to be longer than three and a half years. My understanding is that the tribulation is going to be cut short by the signs in the heavens and the rapture of the saints and the pouring out of God's wrath, the day of the Lord commencement. That will cut short the day of uh, that will cut short the uh, tribulation days, so that they'll end up being not even three and a half years. They'll end up being maybe I don't know, uh, you know, Lord willing, Bezat Hashem, as you say in Hebrew, they'll end up being uh, you know maybe a mere year or maybe something that effect. We can only pray, right? Um, let's let's read a few more points uh, in Guzik. He mentions that up to this point, uh, Jesus has given an important outline for end-time events. There will arise uh, catastrophes and persecutions, but those in themselves are not the sign of the end. Uh, he continues, there will arise, this is Guzik, there will arise a pivotal sign, the abomination of desolation. That's itself a pivotal sign, even though Yeshua doesn't say, um, this is a sign, I don't, I don't recall that he uses the word sign next to uh, the abomination, but he does highlight it. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and then he, we've got this insert bracketed, let the reader understand. Well, this is Yeshua's way of saying, when you see this event happening, if you're the ones that are alive during that time, when you see this happening, you need to understand that there is a momentous event that's about to take place. The uh, tribulation is about to commence. So that's why he tells his disciples, those of you in Judea, get out, get up, get out, flee, right? Flee south, etc., etc." So if this took place in 70 AD, partially, then the disciples or the, the followers of Yeshua that were around in that time um, fled for their lives from Jerusalem, uh, the destruction of the temple. Uh, the uh, siege of Jerusalem and things like that. There wasn't an Antichrist desecrating the temple in 70 AD, as far as I could understand, there wasn't. That had taken place 200 years earlier with Hanukkah and Antiochus Epiphanes and things like that. Which, by the way, at the time of this recording, I, it's, we're right in the middle of Hanukkah, so now's the time to, that's a good time to get out your history book and read about Antiochus Epiphanes, the forerunner to Antichrist, or go back and listen to my previous shows where we talked about uh, the forerunner, Antichrist, and um, how he's a forerunner in a shadow of the um, Antichrist to come in the future. Go back and listen to some of my previous shows. Also, go to my website at tatesatora.com and notice that right now I am advertising or um, yeah, advertising, I suppose that's the right word. The commentary on Hanukkah that I have posted on my own website, which talks about the events surrounding Antiochus Epiphanes and the, the desecration of the temple the the first abomination of desolation and the victory won by those judean uh uh, uh what we call rebels um freedom fighters um who resisted the uh uh intense hellenization of jerusalem and fought back and eventually won under by god's grace you know of course i'm talking about the family of the of the uh of mattathias um uh, Maccabees, right? The Maccabean family who won that victory by God's help and grace, and the temple was reclaimed, and then they had to rededicate it and uh, purify it and cleanse it so that they could commence sacrifice once more. So we'll see some repeat of that. Will we have another Judas Maccabeus? Not sure exactly, but that would be nice. Eventually, the temple will be desecrated by Antiochus, uh, the, I'm sorry, by the future Antichrist. So there must be a temple. He'll desecrate it again. He'll unleash his 
uh, intense great tribulation that Yeshua warned his disciples about. And then when that happens, the temple will probably, whatever temple it is, it will probably suffer uh, greatly, perhaps being destroyed again as Antichrist turns on Israel. But that all that doesn't matter, because whatever the temple is that we're talking about, Yeshua is going to rebuild another one for his own thousand-year millennial reign here on earth. It'll be a holy temple. It won't be one that's defiled, that has been previously defiled. And the size, as far as I can understand, if, I'm, if I take Ezekiel's last, say, ten chapters of his book, literally, then we're talking about a millennial temple that will be... I mean, much larger in size than the current one, even the Temple Mount, it'll, it'll swallow up a lot of Jerusalem. All right, that was kind of a little bit of a side trail. Let's continue. Let me see if I can read just this last uh, three bullet points here, and then we'll call the study quits and uh, pick this up again next week. Guzik continues by saying that when the abomination of desolation does appear, there are warnings to Israel to do what? To flee after the abomination. Again, signs that are primarily Israel-centric. This could make sense for those Christians who believe that they won't won't be around during all of this time. They will have already been raptured. That all of this abomination of of a temple and things like that are really for for Israel. Okay, I agree with some of that. Yes, a lot of what we're reading about is Israel-centric. Israel is the focal point of a lot of the end-time events. The 70th week of Daniel is Israel-centric. And so, Jerusalem will be the epicenter. In fact, according to my understanding, at some point in time, Jerusalem will be the will be occupied by the Antichrist as his headquarters, turning her effectively into Mystery Babylon, turning Jerusalem itself into the harlot, the whore, from which all of these uh, many abominations will be going forth. Not just the abomination where he turns on Jerusalem, but prior to that, also will seem to have perhaps even some intense. Um, allowable uh you know there's a temple mount up there that supposedly we're worshiping god and yet at the same time perhaps uh israel will be committing all kinds of um atrocities uh allowing um you know all manner of of religions to have access here and there kind of this multi-religious uh ecumenical push uh to allow everybody to have a voice which of course isn't according to the Bible, also. So uh, we'll get to that in time when we when we start talking about mystery Babylon. Uh, Guzik continues by saying, on the heels of the abomination of desolation, that's the midpoint, comes great tribulation. So chronologically, and then cosmic disturbances, and then finally he says, in culmination, Jesus Christ will return in glory to the earth. And so that's the sequence of events that Guzik shares, and he can share these events even if he is a pre-tribber, because he might believe that Christians will be gone, but that doesn't change the fact that many of these events will play out chronologically the way that they've been described by Yeshua here in Matthew. And so at least he's holding to that perspective, which I appreciate, which is why I'm using his notes here in our commentary but that'll do it for now for tonight we'll pick this up again next week i don't see any foresee any breaks on the horizon unless they cut the power out again here where i live but we'll pick this up again where he's talk where yeshua continues to explain to his disciples about about the events that are leading up to his second return and how that we who now live in the days where his second return his second coming could be um, triggered very, very quickly by by what I understand to be the signing of the peace treaty with Israel and a prominent leader that eventually will 
become uh, turn out to be the Antichrist. I believe that we could be the generation that sees the return of Jesus. And so for that, I'm I'm living with a great sense of urgency and um, expectancy and excitement um, because of the days that we live in. Yet at the same time, um, there's a lot of suffering right around the corner, a lot of pain and uh, loss of life because of the great tribulation that's right around the corner as well. So let's continue to pour into our master's words here uh, during this study so that we are of those who are of the blessed hope. But that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture at Congregation K. Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of of your generosity and as i always say be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others let's turn to a trinitarian response to biblical unitarianism that's the name of the study my name is Ari ben lyman hanavi thank you for joining me week after week i apologize that we had this such a long break between studies um it's easy to get lost when you have such a long break but thankfully through the medium of the internet you can go back and listen to previous shows if it's been a long break. You're like, wow, where did this guy leave off? Versus if it was a live sermon, there was no electronic 
capturing of my studies, then you just have to have a good memory. But fortunately, you can go back online to my uh, YouTube channel and watch previous videos, or you can go to my website and uh, look at the past studies or uh, go to iTunes and listen to previous podcasts. So this is a, um, a study on the differences, the stark, sharp differences between the Trinitarian perspective of our God which would, of course, include God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the non-Trinitarian perspective known as Biblical Unitarianism. We're borrowing a website known as BiblicalUnitarian.com. You can see on my screen right now, which is a resource provided by the Biblical Unitarian denomination of Christianity to explain from their perspective that there's only one God and that the person known as Jehovah or Yahweh in the Old Testament, the Father described in the New Testament, is numerically one with the person that's described as God, that awesome in the Greek, and uh, Yahweh or Elohim sometimes in the uh, Hebrew. So this, or Adonai, so this person of the Bible that, that the Biblical Unitarians call God excludes the person that the Biblical Unitarians recognize as Jesus Christ. Jesus plays a prominent role in God's plans, for sure. He's the agent of God that's sent by God, commissioned by God, to be the uh, focal point of salvation. No one can be saved except trusting in the sacrifice that Yeshua made on the cross. Biblical Unitarian holds to that perspective, as far as I understand. And when it comes to Jesus position as being worship, receiving worship by all of humanity because he was the sin sacrifice, Biblical Unitarian also believes that we should be worshiping Jesus, but not worshiping him as God, rather worshiping him as Lord and Savior in the sense that he is the ultimate final master of all humans that put their trust in his name. So they just simply stop short of giving him God status and calling him full de deity. We, Biblical Unitarians, of course, disagree with that, and we're working through this passage here in Proverbs 8.23, where we are challenging their understanding of who Lady Wisdom is, and our understanding of who Lady Wisdom is. And so what we've been doing is working through a, a commentary that I put together, it's not very long, and we're, we've already looked at Biblical Unitarians' perspective. They believe that Lady Wisdom, in a note, in a word, is basically another agency tool that God utilized to create the world. Um, if I remember their perspective correctly, let me just pull up. Uh, this is uh, uh, my own notes here. Well, you know what? Why am I doing that? I've got their notes here. Let me just jump directly to there. So if I click on Proverbs 8.23 from their website at biblicalunitarian.com, a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ, their notes on this passage are extremely short, so I can read them at length. So let me read uh, Proverbs 8, 22 and 23 from the NASB first, and then uh, we'll look at uh, BiblicalUnitarian.com's perspective. This is, I need to do a little bit of previously on, because we've lost so much time over the last few weeks, a lot of people are lost. So in verse 22 of Proverbs chapter 8, the, the NSB version of the Bible reads, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. Who is God talking about? Who is the proverbist uh, writing about? The Hebrew says, um, Adonai kanini rishit darko kedem mi pa'alive me'at. The Lord possessed me. This is Lady Wisdom who is saying that God possessed me. 
or uh, before uh, the creation of the world. And then in verse 23, the writer to the book of Proverbs says, from everlasting, I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. We go look at the uh, the Hebrew. Me'olam nisachti me'rosh mikadme aretz. And we're talking about trying to understand, was Lady Wisdom created by God, or was she a part of God's toolkit that was already in existence, and yet the proverb, the, the proverbist, I think that's the right word, the proverbist, like the psalmist, right, the proverbist, if it isn't, I'm, I'm making up a word, the person who wrote the book of Proverbs, the, the proverber, <laughs> um, he is simply using a kind of stylistic writing almost similar to poetry uh, metaphorically or symbolically speaking of wisdom as if it's a person so he's using what biblical unitarian would label personification i believe that's the, the term they're going to use let's turn back over to their uh, commentary and look real quick uh, biblical unitarian says of this passage occasionally a trinitarian will use this verse to try to support the trinity and the pre-existence of christ by saying that quote wisdom unquote was appointed from eternity christ is the quote-unquote wisdom of god first corinthians 1 24 and therefore christ was from eternity so that's biblical unitarian's objection to trinitarian leaning language regarding the wisdom of this particular um chapter Give me a second, Luke. I'm pausing because I want to start the timer. I just realized I didn't start, so this uh, there was no timer going on. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue. So, if biblical Unitarian is accurate that the person who wrote the Book of Proverbs is merely using personification to describe an agent or a tool that God was using to create the earth and the end of the universe then it's not necessary to equate that tool with jesus because remember according to the biblical unitarian perspective jesus didn't enter the scene physically until his birth in bethlehem in the first century so what does biblical unitarian believe jesus what's his involvement in the creation process Jesus is a concept on God's mind, a plan, a future plan, a son that would be born one day, but was not around during the creation of the world. Instead, Jesus is in the mind of God, and thus wisdom is simply the personification of one of God's attributes or powers that's being spoken of kind of poetically to describe God utilizing wisdom to create the universe, etc., etc. They go on to say it this way. This position that they're talking about, the Trinitarian position, has not found strong support even among Trinitarians, and for good reason. I want to pause and interject. It's not that saying that Jesus is Lady Wisdom or that Jesus is wisdom uh, is not a strong position that doesn't find a strong support. I think they're kind of strawmanning it there. Uh, the position of the Trinitarians. Rather, as we're going to find out, there are two kind of prominent Trinitarian answers or explanations of who wisdom is in the New Testament in relationship to Yeshua that we'll get to in time um, in this particular study. And so really, there's kind of three views on the table right now. There's the biblical Unitarian view, which I'm calling in my commentary the Unitarian view. I'm not always using the term biblical in front of Unitarian. I'm just calling it the generic Unitarian, which is non-Trinitarian perspective. Biblical Unitarian is a particular branch of Unitarianism that has some disagreements with Unitarian Universalism as a whole. So both 
of those non-Trinitarian outfits are Unitarian or non-Trinitarian. They're both Unitarian, um, but we're looking specifically at Biblical Unitarianism. That's one of the three. We're looking at a version of Trinitarianism. That's number two of three. And then we're looking at a third version of Trinitarianism. That's three of three. We'll get to those in time. Right now, we're working through the Biblical Unitarian perspective. <coughs> Excuse me. So, Biblical Unitarian continues, they say that this wisdom in Proverbs was quote-unquote appointed, literally from the Hebrew, set up by God and is therefore subordinate to God. So, they're going to play the subordinationism clause because it's helpful from their perspective to continue to show that Jesus, as powerful as he is in the scheme of the Bible, he's still subordinate to the Father. And the thing that perhaps Biblical Unitarian doesn't quite understand at all times is that we Trinitarians, although not being subordinationists, right, we, we reject subordinationism, we do believe that from the, um, uh, not from the ontological perspective, but from the economical perspective of the Trinity, right, ontological deals with the nature of God, his inner nature, what makes, what's his makeup, what's he made of, right, how is he constructed, if you want to call it that. The um, economical, by comparison, deals with the, or answers to the question to the dealings of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God, as are executed and witnessed and sometimes participated in by human beings here on planet Earth. What, How is God running the universe? What's the economy in terms of God's uh, identity? How does he deal with human beings and running the universe? So when we look at the ontological aspect of God, we're dealing with Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all sharing the same nature, one essence, one homo Usius, one um, divine nature shared by one being. Three persons, all co-equal in terms of sharing that one divine nature. So there's no subordinationism going on there in the ontological aspect of the Trinity of God. But when we talk about the economic perspective, the Father is over the Son, and the Son is in some regards, over the Spirit in terms of procession, meaning God uh, be God um, God births the Son, uh, God begets the Son in an eternal begetting, right? It's not a physical begettal like humans do, where fathers actually give birth to children in a physical form. Therefore, physically, the sons are lesser than the Father, subordinate to them. Rather, in God's economic economy there's there is a what we might call a hierarchy in the nature and i'm sorry not the nature but the persons of god between father son and holy spirit father begets the son and son sends forth the spirit the spirit is 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 issues or is sent forth uh per the son's authority so that's not to be confused with subordinationism. So when Biblical Unitarian plays the subordinate card, when they say, and is therefore subordinate to God, it's it's really a bit of a misleading statement unless you fully understand that they're not talking, that we Trinitarians are not saying that the Son is subordinate to the Father ontologically. But Biblical Unitarian is, I believe. They're saying that the Son is in all ways subordinate to the Father because he's not equal with God the Father in essence. They go on to say that, speaking about this passage in uh, Proverbs, carefully reading the verse and its context shows, listen to their explanation, that wisdom was quote-unquote brought forth as the first of his works, verse 22, 
And so um, let me pause and say that there are different versions of non-Trinitarian theology out there. Remember, Biblical Unitarianism is a representation of an earlier version of non-Trinitarian theology named um, Socinianism. And this is a a view of God that rejects Trinity, that embraces God alone as the sole deity, and that therefore Jesus is the human agent, the human son, the human Messiah brought into the world and sent by God to be the salvation um, uh, ingredient, to be the, the suffering servant, to be the sacrifice. Yes, they believe that part. And yet, the Holy Spirit is not a third person either. He is merely a power sent from God. It's another name to describe God. It is the energy from God that God can bequeath to humans, etc. etc. Notice I keep saying it because they don't give the person the Holy Spirit personhood. He's a it is if you're talking about the power, it's it's just that. It's an it. It's an object. It is a force of energy. Like the force in Star Wars, I guess, right? May the force be with you. And yet if we're looking at passages that talk about the Spirit and God is in view, He's the referent, then really the Spirit's just another name for God who Himself is a Spirit. But Biblical Unitarian highlights these aspects about being brought forth, but that doesn't mean that they believe that Jesus was brought forth from eternity past. Remember, from the Socinian perspective, Jesus came into the world in the first century. This is not to be confused with the ancient Aryan perspective, which lives and breathes today in the, in the, under the term Jehovah's Witnesses and other, others like them. They believe that when Proverbs is talking about wisdom being brought forth, they believe that this is an indicator that Jesus was created by God before the universe was created. So, in the beginning of eternity past, there was God who is eternal. All three of us agree on that On that aspect. God is eternal, and yet according to the Arian view, Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus was the first creature created, the firstborn of God's creatures to be created, and then Jesus created everything else, and therefore, Jesus predates the universe but he's not eternal. The Biblical Unitarian, being Socinians, they reject the Arian slash Jehovah's Witness perspective, and they simply say that no, uh, these verses in, in Proverbs, when it talks about wisdom being brought forth, is just symbolic language, and all the verses in John that talk about in the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, Word was God, all of that is just talking about Jesus existing in the mind of God, and anything that talks about G- the world being created through Jesus is really just agency language, but it's not agency in the form of Jesus having existence prior to the universe, rather Jesus being in the mind of God, something to that effect. All right, so they go on to talk about in uh, Proverbs here uh, that if this wisdom, quote-unquote, were Christ, then Christ would be the first creation of God. That's the Jehovah's Witnesses slash Arian view, which is an Arian belief and heretical to Orthodox Trinitarians. Right? They're trying to sell their brand of denominational Christianity here, Biblical Unitarian, by saying, look, you Trinitarians, you already reject the Arian view, which is held by the Job's Witnesses. You know that's not orthodox. So it's only one step to just kind of sharpen your view of God by coming over to the Biblical Unitarian camp, leaving the errant Trinitarian view, and coming over to the Biblical Unitarian camp, where we fully explain that there's truly only one God. We're monotheistic, true and true, and we only believe in one God, not some sort of hyper God or demigod like Jesus claims. Uh, Jesus is claimed to 
to be in their misunderstanding or misrepresentation of Trinitarian perspectives. Um, I'm not sure that biblical Unitarians do believe that Trinitarians believe that. It'd be nice to have a conversation one of these days with a biblical Unitarian and ask them exactly what do you guys think that we believe? Right? What do you think we are holding to? Three gods, demigods, lesser gods, you know, mini me's like um, you know, Austin Powers and the mini me. Is that what's going on with Jesus? No, 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 and no to all of the above uh, questions. Let's keep reading Biblical Unitarian. Therefore, they go on to say many of the church fathers rejected this verse as supportive of the Trinity. Among them, such notice this heavyweights as uh, Athanasius, Basil, Gregory, Epiphanius, and Cyril. And this again is almost a bit of a straw man, in my opinion, because I've read some of the church fathers. And even though there were some slightly differing views among the church fathers as to the exact nature of God, in the end, what we had is a consolidation of the church fathers' views finalized in what we today call certain um, Apostles' Creed, Athanasius' Creed, um, um, the, 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 the final creeds that were formulated came down decidedly on the Trinitarian perspective, even if it was still in kind of fluctuation leading up to, the, up to that point with some of the church fathers. So it's true that I don't agree with everything that the church fathers teach. They had differing, kind of someone somewhat slightly uh, different perspectives on Trinity, articulating it in, in ways that I today wouldn't embrace. But in the end... Um, when all the councils were said and done, uh, Trinitarian Orthodox perspectives were the agreed-upon view. And that's something that at least Biblical Unitarian isn't highlighting right now. And by not mentioning all that, it seems like they're trying to give the readers the impression that, hey, even the Church Fathers don't agree with you Trinitarian perspective on who Jesus is in, re in regards to um Lady Wisdom. So why would you embrace that? It's kind of what they're implying, but that's not, not quite exactly the case. So again, a little bit of... Um, uh, a little bit of strawmanning going on or something like that. I don't know if they're really strawmanning there, but at least they're not giving the full picture, which um, do your homework and go back and look at the uh, church fathers and see what they said um, in their conclusionary statements. When they finally, when all was said and done and some of the creeds were formulated, um, they finally came down on the side of Orthodox Trinitarian, meaning Biblical Unitarian was the one that was labeled heretical. Biblical Unitarian almost wants us to believe that the ancient Old Testament perspective of the Bible was monotheistic Unitarian version, right? Strict monotheism in the Unitarian flavor. They also almost want us to come to the conclusion or believe that the ancient church fathers were or also of themselves biblical Unitarians. It's like they want to predate their own Socinian roots. They want to describe a Socinianism that existed back in the Old Testament and was and that has survived through the early uh, patristic period of the Church Fathers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right down to this day to modern-day Biblical Unitarians. But they're, they're not quite given the full historical picture there. Yes, the Old Testament is monotheistic, but I believe we could make a case that Although we wouldn't, maybe we couldn't call it Trinitarianism in the Old Testament, what we do have are passages and, and uh, glimpses into the um, complex nature of God that by the time we get to the New Testament and the experience, the experiential Trinitarian um, lifestyles that the New Testament writers led and wrote about, by the time we get there, we have complete. Uh, what we might call support for the Trinity, articulation of Trinity, as well as consistency with Old Testament sh types and shadows of Trinity that were foretold or for uh, mentioned. I'm sorry, for uh, demonstrated in like 
uh, figures such as the Angel of the Lord and the Theophanies and the uh, Captain of the Lord's Hosts and things like that, the language that's used in the Old Testament is consistent with the Trinitarian perspective that's that we read about in the New Testament Bible. And this is to the embarrassment of the biblical Unitarians for number one reason, that they don't know their Old Testament very well, if that's what they're teaching. But the number two one is even more embarrassing. It's because in their attempt to disprove Trinitarian theology, they are, um, they are stripping the New Testament uh, Bible passages of its authoritative um, voice. They're basically neutering it, saying that, well, we're Christians, we believe in Jesus, we believe in his Messiahship, and we believe he's the only salvation uh, offered in the world, and so you got to be a Christian, you should believe in Jesus. And yet, they pay lip service to the New Testament in rejecting the authoritative voice that the New Testament teaches when it comes to who uh, Jesus truly is. Let's keep reading this um, explanation from the Biblical Unitarian. I don't want to take up all the time on this um, uh, review, this uh, uh, previously on segment. But they go on to say that we reject it also, but for different reasons. So they reject Trinitarian, uh, but for different reasons. They go on to say that taking a concept and speaking of it as if it were a person is the figure of speech known as personification. So there you have it. There's their perspective. They go on to say that definition-wise, personification often makes it easier to relate to a concept or idea because as humans, we are familiar with relating to other humans. Continuing, personification was common among Jews and the wisdom of God is personified in Proverbs. So, they conclude by saying Christ is considered the wisdom of God in Corinthians. Why? Because of what God accomplishes through him. And I might add, not necessarily because wisdom is Jesus. That's what they're implying by they say that the wisdom of God is what God accomplishes through him. So, they play the agency card quite heavily. When we say agency, we're talking about God accomplishing certain actions, prerogatives, and um, attributes that we see Yeshua uh, possessing, but it's not because he is innately God, according to the the BU perspective. Uh, it's because of Jesus being the unique supreme agent of God has been just like the angel of the old of the Old Testament, angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, been allowed to speak in first person as God to humans, giving the impression that to humans that he is God, but in reality that he isn't. So that's their perspective on who the angel of the Lord is, slash who Jesus is. All right. Launching from that, let's jump into my own commentary. So more than two weeks ago, we started into this section known as some brief Hebrew insights. And originally my commentary had some notes that I was utilizing that I realized later on, because I wrote this such uh, earlier this year, that I realized later on that I didn't have the right reference points for which Hebrew words that I'm going to be pointing to in the commentary at hand. So I discarded that version don't worry, you guys never saw it. You didn't even have a chance because it never made it to the light of, never saw the light of day. Only those who in the Skype class uh, caught it. But um, I discarded that and rewrote this. And so it was great to have a little bit of time for the break. Give me some time to rewrite all of this. So I rewrote this section for the brief Hebrew insights to include the words that I originally wanted. So let's read this. This is a section of my own commentary, which is not available anywhere online uh, by design. It's so that you will uh, make it a point to attend uh, the live studies or uh, watch the YouTube videos or listen to the YouTube comment, uh, the um, iPass comment. 
pod, the podcasts themselves uh, in an effort to support my ministry in that way. I'll plug into these other resources that I have instead of always leaning on my website at tatetator.com. So I, this is not available on my website. This is exclusive to uh, my YouTube channel and my um, iTunes podcast. Some brief he- Hebrew insights. Let's talk about um, some of the language that we read about. Like when I go back over to... Um, uh, Zoom that out. When I go back over to Proverbs here, we talk about how the Lord possessed me at the beginning. So we've got um, kanini, which is the word for possessing. It's the, the the verb in the verse, but it's followed immediately by this um, noun reshit, which is if you can hear, if you're familiar with Hebrew, this is similar to the word in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew reads reshit. Bereshit is composed of a, a um, conjunction b, which is in or within or at that time, followed by the word rush, the root word, which from what we get the cognate reshit, the beginning, the head of. The Lord possessed me at the reshit, at the beginning of his way. Well, how far back are we talking about when we say beginning? If we're talking about an agent of God in in uh, Arian fashion, like Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, then this is before the beginning of the creation of the universe. So Jesus is the first thing that God created, and then Jesus, uh, God created Jesus, and Jesus created everything else, according to Jehovah's Witnesses slash Arianism. And we have kind of support for that from verses like this, if that's the way they are to read it. Likewise, this word rosh, the root word rosh from where we get reshit, is pushed again from beginning down up here in verse 22. It's borrowed again in verse 23 down below. Like you can see, from the everlasting I was established. Again, the, the proverbist says, from the beginning, in the Hebrew it's merosh, uh, over, oops, let's try that again. Right. Okay, that's not working. Give me a moment. Scroll up and go like that. From that Hebrew word right there, Merosh, right? Um, from the beginning. So it, it almost seems again like the Jehovah's Witnesses have kind of a slam dunk, uh, open and shut case to make for if, so follow the logic. If wisdom in the book of Proverbs is Jesus, and Jesus is the one that's described as the agent of God, agent of God in the New Testament scriptures, right? All things were created by him, before him, and through him, etc., etc. Uh, right? John 1 1 as well. All things were created through him. Then if wisdom is Jesus in in the Old Testament, and Jesus is the agent of God in the New Testament, then logic follows from their perspective that Jesus was created by God at the beginning. God possessed Jesus at the beginning, etc., etc. So that's why they're kind of going in that direction. But really, what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump to some of the Hebrew words that are related to wisdom being possessed, right? Kanini Rishit, at the beginning, as well as being established, Nisachti Mirosh, by God. At, from the beginning, and um, also eventually, as we're going to get for uh, get into it, when we get down to verse twenty four, there's this um, peculiar Hebrew word. Let me read the English first. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. Right in the English, there when there were no springs abounding with water, and over in the Hebrew, when we talk about brought forth, ah, oh, didn't mean to click on that. Let's try that again. When we talk about brought forth. It's uh, this word right here, cholalti. It's a tongue twister for me. And so we're going to be looking at um, this word, but we're also um, 
going to be contrasting or comparing that to uh, some of the other uh, verbs that we already looked at or that we already highlighted about Jesus being established as well as, I'm sorry, wisdom being established as well as being possessed. So there's really three words that are kind of driving my uh, understanding of this passage. We've got the the Kanini word in verse 22, which is possessed in the English. We've got the Nisachti word, which is the second word. I didn't highlight it for you, which is right there. Nisachti, which is established in verse 23. And then we've got the Cholal Cholalti in verse 24, uh, which is the brought forth word. So let's begin to look at some of these um, Hebrew insights in my own uh, uh, commentary. But I got in order to do that, in order to get the um, context of where I'm going to be driving, I'm going to back up to a passage that we actually we've looked at in the past, I believe, which is Psalm, the Book of Psalms, where we use this idea of begotten. So. First, I need to rip away from the Jehovah's Witnesses their misunderstanding of Jesus being described as the first begotten or the firstborn of God. That's who's prophesied, begot, and brought forth. I'm going to take that understanding away from them because they're misusing it. And then from there, I'll launch into um, Jesus, our wisdom being um, uh, possessed. That sounds really weird. Jesus being possessed by possessed, being a possession of God, like a tool, as well as being uh, established by God, and then finally being brought forth by God in what we might call birth language. But this is all kind of rooted in this idea of begotten. So follow along with me. So this is my own commentary. We're not going to finish it tonight. We're just taking a bite out of it. I go on to say the Hebrew word for begotten in Psalm 2-7. So we're going to back up to the book of Psalms before we look at the book of Proverbs. We got this uh, word called Yelidticha, which is, I've translated it there as Y apostrophe L-I-D apostrophe T-I-Y-K-H-A, Yelidticha, right? So this is the word for begotten, and its root word is Yalad, Y-A-L-A-D. And this word, according to my research, means to bear, to beget, or to bring forth. It's just a standard word for giving birth. Humans can do it. Animals can do it. It's not a big deal, really. Um, It's the context that drives what it truly means. But when the Jehovah's Witnesses come along and say this is proof that God gave birth to Jesus somehow, that he created him or birthed him as his own son in in a strange, mysterious way, um, then we need to still go back and look at the way this word is used in the context of God bringing his son into the picture at the same time linking that up with the fact that this son is someone in God's scheme of things that is primarily the um, the inheritor of God's uh, kingdom, the inheritor of God's glory, the inheritor of God's uh, legacy. And so when we say the firstborn or the, the, the begotten one, we're going to have to look at this term from God's perspective as not having to be literally God giving birth to a son. And in fact, to the embarrassment of the Jehovah's Witnesses slash Arians, according to God's way of created order, like gives birth to like. So if Jesus is truly the only unique son of God, how is it that Jesus didn't get passed onto him full divinity, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses' answer? He didn't get that part. He's, he's divine, but he's not deity. 
see how they kind of must they, they have this like um, splitting hairs difference between playing with certain words in the new testament that talk about jesus being deity or divine okay so let's read my own commentary because i'm trying to get ahead of myself so we got to bear to beget or to bring forth in this context this word refers to what i have learned as the relationship between god and the prophesied messianic king of israel who is personified by david in the old testament he is the personification of this messianic king but is ultimately as i say who's referred to as god's son in the old testament but ultimately this goes on to become the um, son of god uh, messiah himself i go on to say the equivalent greek word for begotten in the septuagint is we're going to get to more greek later on but i'm just giving you a sneak preview now because this is the hebrew insights so we've got this um gegeneka uh, transliterated as G-E-G-E-N-N-E-Y-K-A, but Gegeneka in the Greek stems from the root word Ganao, and Ganao means to beget, to give birth, or to produce. So it's we're talking about a generic word for um, bringing offspring in from a parent. Again, when we're talking about God, we have to start thinking of how does this work? How exactly did God give birth to Jesus according to the Jehovah's Witnesses model where Jesus ends up being a lesser God, a, a, a God as a small G-O-D. He's a God-like being, even though God says you shall have no other gods before me. So even if Jesus is a lowercase G-O-D, he's still another God, which is forbidden by the Bible. Hello, Jehovah's Witnesses, are you guys listening to my con- my podcast here? You're listening and watching my videos. Um, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Last time I checked, that includes uh, capital G-O-Ds and lowercase G-O-Ds, right? The theology works both ways, and yet you're trying to tell me that Jesus is a lowercase G-O-D, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a lowercase G-O-D. Go back and listen to the commentary that I put in my uh, on my website where we reviewed John 1-1's um, In the Beginning Was the Word, where I reject, soundly reject the Jehovah's Witnesses' perspective on John 1-1 with a lowercase G-O-D. But nevertheless, let's keep going. Um, we've got a few minutes left in this commentary, and I'm, I'm only taking a bite out of this part. So we look, we're looking at Hebrew, we're looking at Greek. Moreover, going back to the Hebrew, the Hebrew term um, that I just read about earlier, holalti, right, transliterated as C-H-O-L-A-L-T-I, holalti, this means brought forth in Proverbs 8.25. Now, notice the similar nuances between the above word for giving birth and this new word here in Proverbs for brought forth. So, giving birth and brought forth. There's some nuance similarities between the words. They even sound a bit similar. We have cholalti in one place, and we have yeliticha in another place. They've got some of the same Hebrew letters in there. Right, that's what I meant by similar. But they 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 have nuanced similarities being brought forth or being giving bringing offspring in. But let's look at this one in Psalm eight twenty five or Proverbs eight twenty five, and then we'll call this part quits for tonight. This term um cholalti, which we read about in uh, Proverbs eight twenty five, it originates in the root word hul, which is translated literated as c h u w l hul, and it means to twist to whirl, to dance, to writhe, or bring forth. So there are some other nuances to the root word that don't necessarily have any relationship to bringing offspring in from the parent 
uh, into the children. Let's keep reading. Proverbs 8.25 refers to what I have recognized as the personification of wisdom, which was, per the consensus of most biblical scholars, present before the creation of the world. So I don't have a problem with part of what biblical Unitarian describes as personification in their own description. Yes, we can have personification in the Bible with wisdom. In fact, Wisdom is often called Lady Wisdom in the personification model because the word wisdom, chokhmah, I believe the Hebrew word, let me just jump back and double check to make sure that I'm not um, misunderstanding or remembering incorrectly. Uh, verse 12, I wisdom dwell with prudence. Ani chokhmah. Yes. So chokhmah is the word for wisdom. And in the way that Hebrew comes down to us as a language that includes masculine and feminine grammatical words, then chokhmah turns into, chokhmah is a feminine word. And that's why we call wisdom a lady, lady wisdom. So we've got a little bit of personification between wisdom in the Old Testament here in the book of Proverbs and Jesus in the New Testament. And we possibly could also have a direct sort of one-to-one reference where wisdom truly is Jesus. Remember, there's two different Trinitarian perspectives. One is more personification. The other is more that wisdom is, in fact, Jesus. And so, both views are uh, representative in the Trinitarian model. So, I'm, I'm fine with that personification language. Um, I go on to say that even Unitarian scholars uh, would have to concede that the one and only immutable and all-wise God has surely been in possession of wisdom from since time immemorial. So, here's where the Biblical Unitarians and the Jehovah's Witnesses have to stop and remind themselves. God who is immutable, meaning He's unchangeable. He's all-wise, meaning He possesses all of wisdom. He lacks none of it. And He cannot change to the point where He lacks something and then acquired something. We cannot have wisdom, and I'm closing with this, we cannot have wisdom as a concept or an attribute of God that He either A, created or brought forth before the, the creation of the universe, utilizing as a tool, as an agent of His creation, we can't have wisdom in that regards because then we have two problems with God. We have one, he was not all wise before he created this tool. And two, he himself changed in a way that conflicts with his um, nature being immutable, meaning unchangeable. So there would be two problems with God if creation was, if wisdom was something he had to create in order to utilize this tool to bring the universe into existence. So that's one problem that the um, biblical Unitarians as well as the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to have to contend with in their competing views of believing that wisdom is this personification of God in the BU model that God brought forth or created. Remember, there's at least one passage here in Proverbs that talks, uses language about um, bringing forth, and then that's it. That's kind of um, supported by the other passage in Psalms that talks about um, language of begettle and begetting that the Jehovah's Witnesses use in their description of this figure of wisdom slash Jesus as the agent of God. So, I hope you're not confused. We're going to continue working through this in time where we are, as Trinitarians, um, rejecting the view of Biblical Unitarianism, 
that wisdom is merely a personification of God, a personification of the wisdom of God, I'm sorry, personification in the sense that it's a it's an attribute of God that either A, didn't have and they had to whip up to, in order to make the world, or at least if they agree that wisdom is something God had from the very beginning, he's just, the proverbist is just using personification of wisdom to describe uh, an attribute of God as if it's a tool that God utilized, kind of agency fashion in that regard. We're rejecting that as biblical Trinitarians. We're also, of course, rejecting and will and always will reject the Arian slash Jehovah's Witnesses version of, of God that rejects uh, Trinity that says that Jesus is the chief creature that was created by God at the beginning, the chief agent of God utilized by God to whip up the world, bring it into existence, and that's who Lady Wisdom is, the first tool that God created in his toolkit. But then again, if that's the case, you know, God's not immutable anymore. He's not all wise. So the Jehovah's Witnesses have a big glaring error in their theology there as well. We'll get to all that in time as we continue looking at this, um, these brief Hebrew insights into this passage. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. Thank you for Hanukkah. Thank you for the season of what Hanukkah represents, which is the rededication. That's literally what Hanukkah means. Dedication in which the temple was rededicated back to you, Lord. And yet, we as the living temple of God, having the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, need to take the lesson from Hanukkah in that if we are living our lives in such a way where there is displeasure in your eyes, where there are things that have defiled our temple, where we allow ourselves to to um, interact with that which is profane, well then, Lord, we pray that you will give us the, res- the, res- the resolve to rededicate our temples during this time, just like Hanukkah was, re- uh, the temple was rededicated during the uh, commemoration of, ha- of what Hanukkah re- commemorates. Lord, let us not just do it when Hanukkah falls. We, it doesn't, we don't have to wait one year, uh, wait till the, this time of the year to rededicate our temples. If we are the temple of the living God, and we are, then we need to dedicate ourselves on a daily basis. So help us to ever keep our temples clean and not allow the defilement so that we can be usable, uh, we can be pleasing in your sight, we can be salt and light like we are called to be. Help us, Lord, to ever be aware of the state of affairs of the world that we're living in. The world is spiraling out of control into ever-deepening and darkening darkness, uh, the blackening darkness, um, and they don't know it. We are that light because you have called us forth. You have, how is it said in the, in the New Testament? You have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Hallelujah. Baruch Hashem for that, Lord. It's not of our own doing because of your intense great love for us and the sacrifice that your son um, put forth, even shedding his own life, giving up his own life for us, right? The righteous dying for the unrighteous. It's beauty for ashes like uh, Crystal Lewis, the, the uh, famous uh, uh, Christian singer saying. So thank you, Lord, for this gift, for this precious um, mandate and this precious opportunity to uh, share our witness with those around us. So give us give us those opportunities, and we'll continue to press in uh, and make ourselves available, making our temples usable, keeping ourselves clean, and not having to become defiled in, in need of rededication on a yearly basis or even a daily basis. Bless those who have joined me uh, during these times, week after week. Continue to carry us along. 
give us um, holy boldness to uh, resist um, the the uh, um, the evil all around us and to continue to press in and walk the walk on the highway of holiness. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you.